Welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something's Match of the Week. A series within the series of Let Me Tell You Something, where myself, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, take it in turns to discuss a match that we've picked within the wide history and wide world of wrestling, sometimes scratching an itch that we've long had ourselves, sometimes to champion a match that we think deserves more recognition, sometimes to explore notorious flops in wrestling to see where they went wrong. With this one, though, it's down the path of us often, unfortunately, having to talk about a recently departed wrestler. This was someone that we wanted to talk about for ages, and we did have a match in line that was probably going to come quite soon anyway. But we've pushed it forward, and I've also, because it's my pick, I've changed which match I was going to pick of this guy for reasons I'll go into later. But Simon, why don't you introduce what match it is we are talking about today? We are talking the matchup between the late, great Antonio Inoki. And Billy Robinson. The British catchers catch can wrestling legend and a huge figurehead in Japanese wrestling as well and Japanese mixed martial arts. So obviously the reason that we're doing this one now and we're even going to put this out even if a five-star match is rated by Dave Meltzer in the interim is because... Antonio Inoki, I think, when I was reflecting on his death and then reading up his obituary by Dave Meltzer in the latest Observer magazine, which is, ooh, it's a long one. It's uh, basically a quarter size of of an average novel length. Jesus, Dave. Some of it's just listing stuff. And at one point, he very clearly has just lifted a big passage from something he wrote in the late 90s. Because he speaks of the WWF-WCW rivalry as an ongoing thing. <laughs> so he should have done a little bit of judicious editing on his own work, but good lord, he pumps this stuff out at such a rate of knots on a weekly basis. I suppose. Oh, I was gonna say he gets a bit of a pass. Maybe you should hire a sub editor, melts, but it's not it's not hurt you so I, far. I, I suppose. No, no. But it's thoroughly exhaustive. I mean, I have you read any of it, Simon? I read. I did read it all eventually. I haven't. I've heard the various like platitudes across like the forms of social media and on AW Dynamite, but I've, I've not actually sat down and and read the obituary from Meltzer. I've seen like the clips people put, uh, posted up on Twitter as well. The massive line of people lining up to get slapped by him. Yes. His temper tantrum after a Luke Gallows awful match in, in, I can't remember the name of the promotion, if it was New Japan or not, but he is not happy at the end of that match. Well, he forces it to finish, doesn't he? Yeah. He forces it to stop. And then he slaps the guy who booked it. <laughs> it was not for means of like imparting his wisdom onto him or, or his fighting spirits through to him, which is what the slap is usually supposed to represent. It was just flat out, you deserve a slap for this. <laughs> like, don't put this on my show ever again. When I was looking at it, though, and trying to grasp my basic knowledge of wrestling history, I added them up, and I would say there are only nine figures in wrestling that I think you could argue are more important or as important as he is to the history of professional wrestling. Because obviously there was wrestling before then. 
But I would say the only other people that are of his caliber of name of importance to what happened to wrestling, both as performers or as businessmen, promoters, the only ones I would put in his league, and I may be forgetting some others, but I would go uh, Frank Gotch, Ed Strangler Lewis, Luthez, Ricky Dozan, El Santo, Vince McMahon, Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, and I'm missing one more in that list. Some Oh, uh, Jim Tolos. Obviously, you can say in more recent times, Austin and The Rock would be up there, I suppose. And, and Giant Baba, the other key figure of Japanese wrestling. But I think the maybe the reason you can push for Inoki above a lot of those guys is it would be like if during the wrestling explosion of the 80s, Vince McMahon was not only booking it and running it, but was also in the Hulk Hogan position and drawing huge crowds as well. That's how special Inoki and as well Ricky Dozan and Giant Baba were at the time that they became stars. Yeah. But with Inoki, there's so many other aspects of his life that are that penetrate the culture. His death was featured prominently on various British news websites. There'll be people that will know him, if for nothing else, than for his match against Muhammad Ali, one of the first examples of a mixed combat sports match. A mixed discipline combat contest. But it's definitely the precursor. You can trace the seeds of maybe even like the YouTube boxing and the whole Floyd Mayweather thing from Anoki Ali. It, it does stem back that far. I mean, that was the match that you pitched that we talk about for this episode, Inoki Ali. It's the one I know the most. And I went against it because it's not a wrestling match and we're still about wrestling. Although I have said subsequent to that, maybe we could do a month of match of the weeks built around wrestling in shoots and shooting wrestling, I suppose. Because I would love to, if we're going to talk about Ali Inoki, I would also love to talk about Sakuraba against Royce Gracie Mm. in Pride. That's another important match in the history of pro wrestling and its involvement with MMA. And also, you know, it was the first, he became the Gracie Hunter because it was essentially the Gracie's success in the early UFC fights that essentially turned grappling on the mat elements of MMA into being rooted in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. But maybe if a person who'd had catch wrestling knowledge like Sakuraba had been in that first UFC fight maybe catch wrestling would have taken over as the dominant style of mat-based grappling in mixed martial arts. And so instead of matches always being won in pretty much every submission hold in MMA is always like a rear naked choke or a guillotine. Or, on the other end of it, the Kimura, which is named after the judo fighter Kimura, who was one of the few people to beat Helio Gracie with that move in an exhibition match which was another early mixed combat contest, then maybe Billy Robinson and catch wrestling would have even more cultural significance in the in the world of combat sports. Yeah. Rather than more of a niche thing like it's seen as today, I suppose. Like a feather to put in your cap. Yeah. But not necessarily something to build your ho... Your, there's, no, there's no great submission wrestler in the UFC that I can think of. There are great wrestlers like... Lesnar and so on but they weren't known for their submissions 
I mean, I, w- I would look at Khabib and his stable, um, and like Dagest- what the influence Dagestan's had. Yes, but it is curious with Inoki because he was such a key figure in Japanese wrestling, and he more than, even more so than Baba, I think, continued the idea of showing Japanese superiority as a key f- factor in it. Because, as we were saying, like the key split in wrestling in Japan was when first Inoki left in seventy one, late seventy one. And then later on in 72, Baba left. And in 1972, both men booked their first events. I think in March of 72 was the first New Japan event. And October of 72 was the first All Japan event. And the conflicting philosophies that either side had. Baba was more the traditionalist pro wrestling. And he took... It's more about like the mentors that you take and the people that you model yourself after. And for Baba, it was more like the Dory Funk Jr. school of professional wrestling. Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk Jr. Whereas... Antonio Inoki took in the more based in reality and real shoot fighting and grappling figures that came from actual legit sports like Frank Gotch and to a lesser extent Luthers because Luthers didn't have legit background but he was legit you know mm-hmm. the reason he was made the champ for this time was because no one could actually try to shoot him and and get the win and that was also the tradition with catch wrestling as well the basic rules were that you had to be a good wrestler in catch and legit in order to then be allowed to be a professional wrestler around that part of the UK in that era. Yeah. It's a great schism really, isn't it? Between that we're describing. Yeah. It's a philosophical difference. And obviously off the back of that, we've covered King Ro- King's road extensively where we ended up with uh, all Japan. We've covered extensively some of the matches we've seen in uh, New Japan for the Five Star Projects have had that shoot-based style. And you still see it with Shibata in his work prior to his re- fortunate retirement. Uh, Nakamura in New Japan. Well, that was because Nakamura was the only person that was able to do what Inoki expected of these pro wrestlers and actually win a mixed martial arts fight occasionally. Yeah. Because that was ultimately the big undoing of New Japan in the start of the 2000s was Inoki was taken by Pride and loved Pride and would turn up at all the Pride events. Basically, Inoki's... I think it's really a sign of the different levels of ego that they had. Because Baba always stayed within the worked environment and the wrestling environment. And it was more of the exhibition and the show of it. And to be fair, it's because Baba probably wasn't legit. Whereas Inoki maybe at least thought he wasn't to an extent, at different times, did prove that he could at least handle himself in a real environment. Yeah. But with Anoki, what he wanted, and I suppose that was the thing he wanted to not just show the superiority over all Japan, his whole notion was that trained wrestlers are the greatest of all. The reason that he dubbed New Japan the king of sports was because they wanted the idea, the basic idea was that the understanding in Japan was that pro wrestling was predetermined. But that it was almost like it was an exhibition of skill. And that if called upon and required to go into a real environment, they could win if they needed to. You know, I suppose continuing on from the tradition of Thez, if he was suddenly finding himself in the middle of the ring, thought he was about to have a work match and instead he went real, he could handle himself. So I suppose, again, because that was the whole thing about in Japan, it's so curious about how it's important that they have this sense of a lineage from outside of it because wrestling was something that was imported to Japan. As we were saying, the that the spirits of Ricky Dozan and Luthez and the inheritance of that and then the historical significance of things like the back suplex and the STF submission hold, which feature in this match when we finally get round to talking about mm. it. 
you've just triggered my memory as well of uh, the, the clips that are thrown up on Twitter in the, in the days following Anoki's passing. There's one match, and I cannot remember the opponent, where the opponent just stops selling for Anoki. Is this the Great Antonio? That's it, thank you. Uh, and Anoki batters him. <laughs> he batters him. He will ne- he, uh, he absolutely takes him to the woodshed in the matter of seconds. Yeah, and I suppose that was, in a way, Inoki needed that to happen because to show, look, if this had gone real, it's gone real, and Inoki would still have won. Yeah. Because even though this guy's 400 pounds, they're putting on a show to entertain you, but it had to turn real at that moment, and he fucked shit up. <laughs> yes. Uh, Great Antonio comes out of it just looking like a dazed and confused toddler when he like <laughs> when you like panter him towards the end. He has no idea where he is, what's going on, or what's happened to him. Yeah, so you, like you said, you wanted us to do the Muhammad Ali fight, and I said, A, it's not wrestling, B, it's incredibly boring. Mm. <laughs> it's basically a 15 rounds of Inoki crawling around on his ass for the most part, kicking at Muhammad Ali's legs. The only way it's significant for its in-ring action is that the health issues that came from that fight uh, in Muhammad Ali. There was a brief talk of amputation at one point. Which obviously would have done Inoki a world of even more legitimacy, I suppose. Mm. There is a fascinating thing, and Meltzer quotes Conor McGregor on it, because McGregor actually studied the fights. I don't know if it was in the build-up to the Floyd Mayweather fight, because that would be another example of... a Particularly boxers very rarely engage in anything outside of boxing. You had James Toney get just owned on the map by Randy Couture. I mean, it's Randy Couture. What was he doing? Art Jimerson in the first ever UFC tournament. There's a moment in the sixth round where Inoki did get him on the ground and did have him almost in a, an armbar submission hold. But Ali was too close to the ropes. I don't think it was a boxing ring-sized ring, which is a bit bigger than a wrestling ring. Mm. So it was easier to get to the ropes to break every hold. And McGregor had said if he'd have been a bit further away from the ropes and he had five more seconds to wrench in that armbar, Ali would have had no idea what to do. Yeah. Would have had to submit. And then that would have changed the world of combat sports irreversibly. We would probably be 20 years ahead of ourselves almost at this point. If instead of it happening in 1993 with the Ultimate Fighting Championship. What what year was that fight again? 76. A year after this match with Billy Robinson that we'll be talking about. Okay, so I'm trying to remember where Ali's career was at that time. I think this is after the thriller in Manila. Yeah. I think he loses the title to Leon Spinks and then wins it back from him. And then there's the really depressing final fight in 1980, I think, against Larry Holmes, where he's just... He shouldn't have... He should never have done it. Yeah, it's it's horrible to watch. And Larry Holmes was his former sparring partner, and he was not enjoying it at all either. You could already see that the mental health you know, and in a different sense of mental health issues were really starting to affect him at that point. Mm. Inoki, it's, it's always been about the legitimacy and the ego of him. And like I said, that's why he pushed it further than, and, than Baba did and wanted to be seen as not even the best wrestler, but the best of everything. So they brought in karate champions. They brought in judokas. They brought in when the Iron Curtain fell in 1989, Inoki rushes in and gets as many Russian amateur wrestlers as he can that have these great Olympic pedigrees, but had no, weren't able to professionalize in that time and didn't have anything to professionalize into really. 
and has these huge events in both Russia and in Japan. Anoki really didn't like the phrase, you can't do it. No. Even if the Japanese government told him, you can't go to Iraq, you can't go to North Korea, Inoki was like, yes, I can. And I will. And I have. <laughs> look at look <laughs> at these photos I've taken. <laughs> look at these hostages I've helped free. <laughs> Watch this video of this show I put on in front of 170,000 people who were definitely not there on the order of death. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, a gate's a gate, brother. <laughs> he had an ego to match and maybe exceed Vince McMahon's and Hulk Hogan's. Like, he might be the biggest egotist in all of wrestling, and that is an incredible achievement. That truly is a remarkable achievement in the world of wrestling to maybe have the biggest ego of anyone. Imagine that conversation between Anoki and Vince. Just imagine them speaking to each other. They had a business partnership a number of times between 1982 and 1984, there were talent trades going on with New Japan and WWF. WWF were one of the first territories that Inoki was able to create a deal with to take talent back and forth. And he often wrestled at Madison Square Garden, which would be filmed and shown on Japanese national TV. Whilst it wasn't as big a deal to the American audiences, the way they would present it. Because again, in New Japan, it was all about legitimacy, being a global force. Not in that sense of the word. But... (laughs) Global force of wrestling? I like the sound of that. Mm. But again, as is so often the case with the Japan, especially New Japan and All Japan, they were bringing in championships from other countries in a weird way because it was like it was at least it was born in the country of origin of wrestling in their eyes of, of America. Because again, this Robinson match is for the NWF heavyweight championship, which was Inoki's championship belt. Weirdly kept in like a special little glass case as well. Like, it's a display watch. Well, you know, I, I've always thought that if I had a wrestling promotion, I think if there was a title match, I would then take the belt after it had been presented and put it in some sort of display case until the winner was declared. That's fine, but, like, take it out, like, <laughs> to show off a bit. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, the amount of ceremony in the start of this match is incredible. Flower girls, introductions, national anthems, belt displays, <laughs> you know... Uh, introduction of dignitaries because Frank Gotch and Luthes are all there to essentially impart their seal of approval because in Japanese professional wrestling they are seen as the god figures of the sport. Mm. Thes is the guy who first fought Ricky Dozan and Gotch is the guy who started to train some of these guys like Inoki and uh, Giant Baba. Ricky Dozan discovered um, Antonio Inoki went because Antonio Inoki and his family had moved to Brazil from Japan which was a very common thing to happen around that time. A lot of Japanese immigrants in Brazil. Mm. 13. He was already an impressive athlete. And then it became national news in Japan that an, uh, a 16-year-old Japanese boy had won the national high school shot put competition in Brazil. And so Ricky Dozan's touring Brazil, finds Inoki, does poses with him for the cameras and brings him back to Japan. And his three key trainees at that time. Are <laughs> Let me his... take your strong son with me. <laughs> yes. And so Ricky Dozan's plan was to build the company after him around three figures. Inoki, Baba, who was a pitcher in Japanese baseball. Ah. And Kintaro Oki, who was his South Korean star. And he would go on to be the biggest wrestler in South Korea. Not the biggest Korean wrestler, which was obviously... Ricky Dozan. But even more significant is the fact that Ricky Dozan was North Korean. 
So that was one of the reasons why Inoki was able to be beloved in North Korea, despite being a Japanese figure, because he was like the uh, the, the, uh, the son of Ricky Dozan, essentially. Right. That makes more sense now. But the funny thing was, again, must have so hurt Inoki's ego, because Baba was the bigger guy and came from baseball, so probably had already more reputation than Inoki. When they were doing their equivalent to the Young Lions matches, wrestling each other all the time and seen as like the two protégés, similar to like Tenru and Saruta in All Japan and the Three Musketeers in New Japan, the basic share of the victories were Baba would win like 80% of the matches and the other 20% of the matches would be time limit draws. Oh, so we know he wasn't happy about that. <laughs> I was going to say that's going to stick in his craw. <laughs> yeah. So Inoki was always sort of seen as the second banana, but he was still seen as really important. They would tag team often. They never were booked then after that in like matches in the main event when they were the main event talents, even after Ricky Dozan had died, because the idea was it's still the Japanese native hero against the foreign adversary Mm. to test Japanese metal. And this whole thing of building up national confidence after, after World War II, which is what Ricky Dozan had started hiding his North Korean identity until genuinely the majority of the Japanese public didn't know he was of Korean heritage until the biopic movie of him came out in the mid-2000s, which is a silver screen vision we will have to cover at some point if we can get a version with subtitles. Imagine getting away with that. That's mad. Inoki then, so he was already annoyed at this. (laughs) He ends up asking for his own... Essentially gets his own championship belt that he can defend because Baba gets the other big title. (laughs) And it was funny because they had essentially TV deals with the Japanese equivalents of BBC and ITV. And like the BBC channel would get the Baba matches and the ITV channel would get the Inoki matches. Ah. But Inoki got fed up, left the promotion at one point, came back when that first attempt fell apart... Then Baba and Inoki tried to stage a wrestler's like uh, uprising against the managements. Sort of similar to what Misawa tried to do with all Because mm. it's so funny. I was trying to do this at one point. I got really far. Uh, I tried to see if I could create essentially a family tree of all Japanese wrestling promotions. Because it seems like ever since the JWA, which was the first Japanese wrestling promotion... Well, I mean, they've been wrestling before Ricky Dozan, but JWA was the Ricky Dozan promotion, and that was the one that brought wrestling to the Japanese masses. That you could essentially then create it like a royal family tree, like the Targaryens or something. Yeah. Because it would always be offshoot by a wrestler within that promotion. So from JWA, you get New Japan with Antonio Inoki, you get All Japan with Baba and other promotions that offshoot there. And then from New Japan, you get UWF with Akira Maeda, you get... Zero One with Shinya Hashimoto. You get UWFI with... Well, from UWF, you get UWFI with Nobuhiku Takada. You get Fujiwara with Yoshiaki Fujiwara. And you get Pancrase with Minoru Suzuki. You also get Rings with Akira Maeda continuing on from there. And, you know, and so on and so on and so on until every promotion's basically birth... Like, uh, from All Japan, you get FMW because yeah. Atsushi Onita retires from All Japan, and then you can get much more of a distance. <laughs> and then from FMW, how can how can I change everything about this instantaneously? <laughs> but also from All Japan, you get Super World of Sports, and then WAR with with Tenru. You know, and it goes on and on and on. And it was really Inoki and Baba that started that with their 
two promotions. I mean, the symbolism of Inoki dying on the 50th anniversary of New Japan as well is crazy. Although Inoki gradually lost control of the promotion in different ways when he got elected to the Japanese diet. But also, in the early 80s, there was a financial scandal involving him and the promoter Shinma that was like a huge catastrophe for them. And the UWF was originally designed. Shinma owned the UWF, and the plan was, Inoki said, I will leave New Japan and come to UWF. But he didn't in the end. And instead, they built it around Maeda instead. Okay. But again, like, Inoki, when he went into the Japanese diet, his emphasis went away from New Japan. He wasn't booking it anymore. The book went to people like Riki Choshu and the office management. It was run by Fujinami and others. So Inoki was more of a spiritual head, a symbolic head at that point. And he'd come back and he'd always win his matches. And he had like a six-year countdown to his retirement or whatever it was. Because, <laughs> yeah, that's what I get to do. Still winning all the matches he had. Some of them rematches of... Well, all of them basically meant to be rematches of classic matches and rivalries that he had. Like, uh, one was the karate master, Willie Williams, uh, who'd won a karate tournament in Japan. And then they had a, a, a worked shoot match, which was like as close as it comes to actually being shoot without being shoot, apparently. And it ends in a draw. Right. But then, 17 years down the line... Williams is not the bigger deal that he was. Had worked in UWFI and lost some matches there, or rings, one of the two. And so, you know, he was able to get the win on his retirement tour. Famously had the match with Big Van Vader, who debuted and beat Inoki in like two minutes in his first match at Sumo Hall, caused a riot that <laughs> meant New Japan was banned from, the, from, from that venue for a while. But anyway... All this is ground, uh, setting up the ground. We, we really need to talk about the match, actually. Jesus Christ, we've gone... I don't know where this is in the episode, but in the recording, it's 30 minutes. And this is a long-ass match. I mean, I got a text from you going, Oh, God, it's two out of three falls. Yeah, didn't know that going in. <laughs> I had warned you it was long. You did, you because, did. To give it away, this match is a two out of three falls match, but it ends with a one-all draw. 60-minute time limit is hit. So yeah. we're talking about a 60-minute match here. And actually, I was going to say, the other match that I was... Before we were going to do this one, before Inoki had died, the Inoki match I had penciled in for us to discuss was going to be his last ever match for the IWGB Heavyweight Championship against Tatsumi Fujinami, who was his protege. Mm. And their last match, which was also a 60-minute time limit draw, which is close as Inoki comes to putting people over, basically. <laughs> in most instances. Like, this isn't the torch passing that Tanahashi did to Okada at Wrestle Kingdom, you know? He must really have liked Billy Robinson, then. <laughs> and that match significantly took place on the 8th of August, 1988. I think in 2018? I might be wrong, but it was on the 8th of August. Minoru Suzuki and Kazuchika Okada had a match that was a 30-minute time limit draw in the G1 mm. Climax, and that was essentially an homage to that match. And it's seen as one of the important matches. And it is seen as the torch passing, just not in the full sense. The truest sense of the word. And Inoki then going on to essentially become like, uh, sort of like what Triple H and The Undertaker and other figures became in the later years of their career. Just, you know, special attraction, one-off matches. They're not going to do the tours anymore. They're not going to be that involved in the title scene as much. Although they'll still get back into it when needs be. Come on, it's Triple H we're talking about here. <laughs> but, <laughs> but again, I just thought, that one is as much, and I want to talk more about like torch passing and as much about Fujinami. I wanted us to talk about Inoki and Inoki the wrestler. And I think this is a match that's often cited as Inoki's actual best 
wrestling match other than the 8888 match this seems to be the one that comes up as like the best quality wrestling match mm. and it, at the time it was billed as the two best technical wrestlers in the world having a technical wrestling masterclass and to me I loved this match but I can understand why others wouldn't and I loved it for its uniqueness I don't think I could deal with a match like this every month of my life but compared to all the stuff that we see now with wrestling to see something like this there was more you can see the lineage of where Luthez style of wrestling goes because we were saying with the Luthez Buddy Rogers match you know you can see that how Buddy Rogers kind of changed it in America yeah. but the Thez style is still there present in this match and Inoki is like the standard bearer of it yeah it's it was a slow it was a slow build throughout this match like the pacing was was slow and methodical but in a good way it didn't really plod so much as it, it we were we were watching i mean i messaged you it's like watching two crocodiles fight the reason i said that is it was very much crocodiles like do go in bursts of energy when they like attack things and then they store up energy for the next attack. That's how that's how they sort of like fight out of things. Like when you wrestle crocodiles, you've got to watch for the sudden explosive bursts in between them lying dormant. I say when you wrestle crocodiles, obviously I mean other people. <laughs> so it was hold for hold, matching, matching. And then every now and again, you'd get, I think the first suplex that happens is like one such explosion of energy. And the crowd are like, oh my God, what's happening? Yeah. It's maybe, if you were to go by the Larry Zbysko definition of wrestling, which is a game of human chess, I would say this is one of the best examples of that you could possibly get. Sorry, now I know it's not your fault, but now I've got the Simpsons quote in my head. There is one more way to kill a man, but it is intricate as a game of chess. And then just <laughs> that machine gun. <laughs> I thought it might have been another aspect of chess culture that's been the talk of the town in recent days. No, no, not that. <laughs> to give a quick sidebar, there's been a scandal in the world of chess. The world's greatest chess player, the Antonio Inoki of chess, you might say, if you were Antonio Inoki. Recently lost in a huge upset to this 19-year-old American chess player. The thing is, this guy had a known history of cheating. Now, he had only cheated in online chess, but there are two instances already at that point. And now, subsequent to that, an investigation has surmised that he has probably cheated hundreds of times in chess tournaments or in chess events. But the question is, this was in a live environment. How on earth do you cheat in a live chess environment? And then the the story goes round that this guy was able to win because he had inserted anal beads into himself. And the anal beads, like those eggs that some women use, if you've seen the terrible Gerard Butler, Catherine Heigl movie, I think it's called The Ugly Truth you'd know that they can be radio-controlled to emit vibrations. And essentially... Mostly via an app on smartphones these days. And so basically people were saying that this guy was receiving messages from someone, (laughs) interpreting them through the beads, and using those to win the match with outside interference. Now, the way I heard it is he would hover his hand over a piece if his prostate basically got tickled that was the one to move my god (laughs) it's just wild the whole thing is wild 
What I love about that story, and we were kind of we were just trying to piece it together, me and my friends, when we when I first told them about the story, is the most interested any of them have been in chess before. I keep abreast of what's happening in chess. I don't watch it, but like I've always been interested in the chess scene and the grandmaster scene since Gary Kasparov played Nigel Short mm. in a series of matches in the UK. It was like the first time a Brit had challenged him. Although there was a whole controversy about that, as it was official or not. You know, it was like boxing or you know. All that sort of stuff, like different divisions and different sanctioning bodies. I guess the most interested... I know who Magnus Carlsen is, and I know, obviously, of his exploits in uh, fantasy football. I have also watched Bobby Fischer versus the world, which, if you're if you're into how the Cold War played out in different fronts, it's definitely worth a watch. You don't necessarily have to be into chess to enjoy the theme that's, that's present in that show. But yeah, now, now we've gone from geopolitics playing out on a chessboard to uh, <laughs> anal beads, basically. What a world. What I love about that is someone at some point has thought of that as a way to cheat in chess. Whether it's happened or not, someone has come up with that idea. How would I cheat in a chess match? You know what i do? Anal beads. <laughs> yeah. And what we also love is this idea that maybe, more than anything, it was just this guy really wanted an excuse to shove some anal beads up his neck. He's like, <laughs> saying to his team, look, lads, win, lose, or draw, I'm going into this thing with anal beads up my ass. So yeah. let's try and get something positive out of this. It's just so, so silly. I swear there was something with Scrabble and people like trying to like bring tiles in, in their mouth or something like that during a Scrabble <laughs> tournament. Oh, my God. Anyway, let's not get into that. This is grappling, you know. This is map-based wrestling for the most part. And as you were saying, I think it's funny because the structure of wrestling now, when we look at that Luthez-Buddy Rogers match, there was still the sense of a heel... Well, so much of that was about the heel Rogers finding ways to cheat and to take advantage of Thez and Thez trying to keep calm but sometimes being drawn into that. And there's elements of that. You can see a lot of Thez physical like beckonings and everything and behavior and also physique wise really he does mirror antonio Inoki quite a lot mm. i think there's a lot of inspiration not just in how he wrestles but how he presents himself how he works how he structures the match and how he brings the audience in whilst keeping it first and foremost looking like a legitimate sporting contest with buddy rogers when it became more showmanship and more of a show and a spectacle I think that's where it then became more clear of how to structure wrestling as essentially a three-act structure. And it being more and more explicit, especially by the time tag team wrestling becomes popular. And, you know, like I've said before, like now it seems like tag team wrestling is like showing off your your skills in a discipline of like a genre. Yeah. Like working within the trappings of the genre and the cutting off of the ring and showing your understanding of it. It's like to show you know how to do this. It's like downhill skiing versus cross-country skiing. They're the same thing, but they're very different. Yeah, and I think that what the Buddy Rogers school... Again, it's maybe if, if we're saying it's, you're either a Brett guy or a Sean guy, maybe before then you're a Thez guy or a Rogers guy, yeah. I suppose. And, and maybe you're an Anoki guy or a Baba guy. Because that was the whole thing about Strong Style and, and King's Row being two different philosophies, and now it's... When you look at New Japan main events, I, I feel like they echo as much the All Japan main events of the 90s as they do the New Japan matches as well. Well, in some ways, it's down to what red garment do you prefer? A scarf or a cardigan? <laughs> I think in those matches, when it was more the sporting spectacle, it's not 
they're not presenting it explicitly as a three-act structure, which was always babyface shine, heel dominance, uh, babyface comeback fire finishing sequence, you know? Mm. Whereas with this one, I see it more as like a symphony with a series of movements. And the movements are started by the lock-up and end with like the face-off or being stood back up. Yeah, And one sequence early on is built around Billy Robinson applying a head... Well, the first one is Billy Robinson applying a headlock. And Inoki having to find a way to escape the headlock. Another point later on is Inoki applying a cravat to Robinson. And then that movement is about Robinson trying to find a way to escape the cravat. And they even do the spot that you saw in so many Johnny Saint matches where... Although with Johnny Saints, it's usually he's holding an armbar or a wrist lock. Billy Robinson's able to power him up and body slam him down. But Inoki keeps the grip of the cravat and so... Mm. Robinson goes down with him, so Inoki's able to take the blow and maintain the hold, so he maintains the control. And so that, especially in the first 20 minutes or so, is what it's about. It's about uh, someone trying to get uh, uh, from the knuckle lock or the lock-up. One will gain an initial advantage with Robinson at one point, he gets an armbar, and then it's about, can I shift the weight of the armbar, get him on the ground, or do I control it there? Does Inoki sort of hip toss out of the arm bar or reapply it himself and he can regain control and then someone hits the ropes they get back up they get stood up we go again and that carries on all the way through to the last six uh, like five four three minutes of the match yeah you would never ever 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 get an american wrestling match on wwe or aew where they do a collar and elbow tie-up any later than like fourth minute of a match maybe Mm. i don't think even when cm punk was trying to go call back to that classic wrestling period in like his match with samoa joe where he was always going back to the headlock they never like reset to like a collar and elbow tie-up or anything after like the first 10 minutes yeah and that was them stretching it out as far as they thought they could feasibly go back then you know it's just we go again we go again we go again we go again and as time goes on, the exhaustion starts to factor in more. Maybe the submission holds are held on longer because the other person's finding it harder. Or they can't apply the submission hold fully because the sweat gets to the point that they're both finding it harder to continue to hold onto the move. Well, that sort of speaks to like the Boston Crabs that are in this match. Because when Billy Robinson locks in his Boston Crab, it's right early on, relatively in the match. And it's after an ex- a alligator-like explosion where he's hit a backbreaker, then he applies the Boston crap. He's seizing the initiative. And it, Anoki, as you've mentioned, it's how he solves that puzzle. He does so by getting into, into some sort of leg lock out of it. Whereas when Anoki applies the Boston crab later in the match, A, he does so on two separate occasions. And B, that period lasts much longer because Billy Robinson, I think it's after, is this after the point where Billy Robinson takes a couple of quick nine counts just to try and get his breath back? Yeah, yeah. Well, essentially, because like you say, you send me the text, oh my God, this is the, <laughs> this was the first fall. And the first fall doesn't happen until like the 42nd minutes. Yeah. And it's when Inoki's got, has been in control for a relatively extended period of time. Relatively. Like I said, there's no period of like a heel dominance where someone's got to make a fiery comeback. Each guy is constantly trying to get into control. You know, there is no time where you're just taking blow after blow after blow and not coming back with anything or at least trying to defend yourself. It's, it's one of those... I think the only the only real heelishness in this is A, the nationalities. 
it's it's homegrown versus Gaijin. And B, there's one bit where Billy gets really frustrated and slaps Anoki. And the crowd are like, oh, you have messed up. <laughs> well, that was that sense of like the first 10 minutes. And they're sort of in a stalemate because neither one can get the advantage. And they're tied up in the ropes in the corner. And the ref's trying to release them. And actually, see, this is like how Alan Shearer get away with all this shit. Inoki throws an elbow. <laughs> and Robinson replies for flat out with a slap to the face. So Inoki instigated that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well... That's it. You, you don't throw the obvious strike. You just make them throw the obvious strike. <laughs> because there is that sense to it at all. That Inoki's like, he's not playing nice. He's not the virtuous babyface. He's the national hero. And if he has to engage and fight, he'll do it. And as I said, you know, like how Luthes would just like clench his knuckles when Buddy Rogers kept pissing him off. And he's like, I'll, I'll punch you in the face if you want me to punch you in the face. <laughs> if we're going to go there. And you'll regret what you've done. But with Billy Robinson, I think the closest you get towards him cheating, and this is us going into the football, is after he gets the backslide surprise win, and Inoki's now, you know, Inoki's shocked. He sells that surprise of being caught with that backslide. And, oh my God. Because he's now only got 18 minutes to get anything out of this. Yeah. And Billy Robinson can lean back on his advantage. And so, like you say, he takes a nine count. He keeps going to the ropes. He does the wrestling equivalent of running the ball into the corner and trying to get the people to force a, a throw-in or a, or a goal kick for your own team. Top-tier shithousery. And essentially, you know, he kind of has to challenge his manhood to that point because he just, he even like goes to the referee and like, there's a moment where the, because the times are being called, but unlike in recent years with Japanese wrestling, where you'll hear an English translation, like there was one moment where it was like, okay, something significant has gone because the crowd's reacted to that. And I know because this match has been long and I couldn't tell it was a 50 minute point or the 55 minute point, but I know because Mm. Then after that, another time's called. And Billy Robinson literally, like, it seems like someone in his corner has indicated him. So he puts his hand out. It's like, I've just got five minutes left. I can do this. But Inoki keeps drawing him in. And then, as we were saying, like, slapping a... Uh, when Inoki slaps you, it's like him instilling his fighting spirit. It's like, come on, you're not going to win just by that, are you? Though you want that second fall on me. And that does engage Robinson. And finally, Robinson plays up. He doesn't, you know, he takes the bait, I suppose. And Inoki's able to capture him in his octopus hold and with less than a minute left to go, forces a submission. Well, he forces him to pass out, doesn't he? Does he pass out? Is that how it goes? Yeah, I don't think he taps, he passes out. Because you, well, the moment Inoki lets go, he is slumped. He's not, like, annoyed. Like, he doesn't move for a good 30 seconds. Because you see his corner rush in, like, oh, crap, is he actually, oh, can we actually get him awake? <laughs> Well, my understanding of it was, because after, after he wins that first four, there is the break. And so mm. I figured that was a minute's break, so there's always this idea that there will be a 60-second rest period between falls. Yeah. And then because Inoki gets that second fall at 59 minutes and 12 seconds, that makes the rest of the 48 seconds redundant yeah. because that goes over the rest period. And that's why both sides come in, because it's just a draw, ah. you know? That was my understanding of it. And then Inoki's like, nah, fuck that. Let's do those 48 seconds. Another thing that's so funny as well with this is I was thinking, because, and we'll talk about this more in the second match as well, what the idea of what the babyface is supposed to have, and it's something that they do do in Japan, is that they they fight from underneath. And Mm. they have to pull it all out when they're at a disadvantage. And so they might absorb the majority of the blows, but they will come out victorious. But because this is booked to be 
a time limit draw, I think that the difference there has to be that Inoki is probably pressing on the advantage and is in control of the match for at least 55 to 65 percent of the match because if he's not gonna get the outright victory he needs to be perceived as the moral victory if it had gone to points which is like the visual victory yeah which is so against what you would understand as the traditional babyface now who would take the beating and come back and find the way out and as i said in the next match we'll talk about someone who does usually go by that structure and completely blows that structure up in the match that we're we're covering (laughs) It's, it's funny, and, and again, it fits him as well. Billy Robinson so perfectly doing that role of what those touring champions, those touring figureheads will be. I mean, this was, I think it was literally his first and turned out only tour of New Japan. And as was the case at that time, the foreign players come in to try to do their job and make their opponent look good. Like the touring NWA world champion would always go to the territories. If he's fighting a face, local hero, then yeah. he's the subtle heel. And he would do what Billy Robinson's doing. He'll time waste. He'll, you know, he'll complain a bit more. He'll be a bit more aggressive in what he does without necessarily outright cheating if it's a Luthez character. Mm. He'll do what he can to put the other person over without losing to them outright. Yeah. And still coming across as a champion themselves. And that's how Billy Robinson is essentially working this match. Because, you know, Billy Robinson wouldn't lose to people that he didn't think were worthy of him losing to, essentially. I mean, when he was this perennial challenger in the AWA during this sort of time period, because that, that was really the main territory he worked. He also, at this point, he was also the Florida heavyweight champion in the Florida region oh, okay. um, of the NWA. But AWA is the period and the time that people associate Billy Robinson with of anywhere in, in America and his matches with first Vern Garnier and then Nick Bockwinkle for the world title, although he never won the title uh, in those mm. promotions. But he never, like, lost that much decisively to them. Maybe he did to Vern Gagne. I don't I didn't get to read that much on it. And also what's funny as well is seeing the lineage of these matches and like I said, you see so much of Luthers in Antonio Inoki. I think you see so much of Zack Sabre Jr. in Billy Robinson. Yeah. And that Billy Robinson mould of the British technical submission wrestler trained in the Wigan Snake Pits comes from that Billy Robinson line and so like Again, he's seen as like this key figurehead, especially when Sakuraba becomes the big star of Pride. Mm. But before then, also in the UWFI, to get their legitimacy, Luthers, I think Frank Gotch, but Billy Robinson were all brought to UWFI to be the trainers of these guys. Ah, uh, okay. And to teach them both the wrestling, but also the catch-shoot wrestling yeah. aspects of it too. They had conflicting ideologies. Apparently, uh, Carl Gotch never cared for the strikes and the kicking which i suppose was stuff that made uh, takada and sayama introduced into pro wrestling taking in the martial arts yeah adding it to the the wrestling which again new japan embraced inoki embraced more than baba did in all japan yeah so you don't really i mean the, the strike exchanges you get in this are the forearm blows and but like I think outside of drop kicks, there's no. I don't. I don't think Yonoki even does his uh, Enziguri move in this match. No, he doesn't. To be his distinguished finishing move. Well, maybe that's because they didn't want Robinson to kick out of it. Whereas Robinson does hit his trademark finishing move, which is the double arm suplex, which yeah, Inoki also does to him in return, and Inoki's able to kick out of it. So again, that's another way of... And I think a couple of times they land right by the ropes as well. Yes, and they also do that, the great spot at the start, when they first start 
do engage in the ropes with some strikes. And Robinson just grabs him and belly-to-belly suplexes him. Which is such an interesting way of doing it. Usually when you do that spot now, you do it with the vertical suplex, I suppose. Because yeah. it's more easy to get you over the top. Well, at least to get the other guy over the top. There's plenty of guys that have screwed it up on the other way. You know, even Seth Rollins has screwed up that move. Yeah. I would give this match, like, at least four and... I think I would go four and three quarters on this mm. match. But yeah, I was also saying, like, Billy Robinson, that lineage continued. Like, when William Regal came to New Japan in the 90s as Stephen Regal, he was seen as... He can do the Billy Robinson stuff, because, again, he was trained in that British wrestling discipline. Yeah. And so when he came to New Japan, he was very much presented as, like, the shooty, you know, the catch wrestling style. And when Inoki came to WCW and had his one american match on his countdown tour he handpicked regal to be his opponents ah, okay. in wcw but uh i think it was clash of the champions or something but it was a mid-card thing but he he chose regal because again if he's mirroring like his great rivalries that's as close as he comes to facing a billy robinson type at that point because billy robinson at this point i think is in his late 30s or so in this match and Inoki, I think, is in his late 20s, maybe. The bit where I see so much of Billy Robinson now is in Zack Sabre Jr. When he's got him on the mat, and he's just shifting his submission holds, and he's not just going for one thing. He's just like, at one point, Inoki's got a leg free, and he's like, well, I'll grab that, and I'll turn that into a... So I've got a half crab in this as well. And that's exactly what Zack Sabre Jr. does with his submission holds. He doesn't just have one set hold. He goes for something with what's available to him. There was a match against Will Ospreay recently, which we did cover... That moment is seared as like seared as my brain where he does just that. I think it's like a loose arm. Or I'm thinking it's like, ah, well, if you're not using it, I'm going to rip it off of you. <laughs> yeah. So again, I wonder. I, I assume that's one of the reasons why Zach was the British wrestler that they went. This is the guy we're going to put. Even before Will Osprey, he was the one that they put in prominence, and but not quite to the superstar level of Osprey because it's a different requirements now. So I think Zach Sabre Junior is ultimately though above Will Osprey the continuation of that British mold that I think, especially in Japanese eyes, starts with Billy Robinson because of his time in New Japan and then All Japan and then his influence in the world of MMA. That when they think British wrestling, they think Billy Robinson. And if you look at that continuation, as I said, there was Regal's arrival in the mid-90s on loan from WCW. And then during that doldrum period where there wasn't much British talent being produced post-ITV wrestling pre-Brit rest wave of recent years, the standard bearers that, that first came from that time, you had Jody Fleisch and Johnny Storm that were clearly much more Americanized. Mm. But then you had Doug Williams who did keep that technical tradition of British wrestling alive through his times in Ring of Honor and TNA and in Japan, he was very successful in Noah on a number of different periods. And he carried that bulk, that Billy Robinson bulk as well, that obviously Zack Sabre Jr. doesn't have, even though he's trying to beef up. But Billy's very much a broad, like, it's a miner's frame, isn't it? <laughs> it's a working class miner's frame. Yeah, yeah, he's got the belly from the pints, but he's got the tensile grip strength of a He could crush an apple in one hand. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's funny as well, like I said, this was the first, I believe, and only New Japan tour that Billy Robinson did, because after he left and went to Florida after this to do a little run, he was then poached by Giant Baba, was made the highest paid gaijin in all of Japanese wrestling, and came along back to World Japan a few months after this, and lost the two out of three falls match in 21 minutes to Giant Baba. 
<laughs> Money talks, doesn't it? Absolutely. And he had a lot of success in All Japan after that, but I still think when people think of Billy Robinson, it's this match with Inoki that's seen as the great one, because I think Inoki obviously complements that style more than Baba ever could, I suppose. Mm. Get, I don't know if he would get more plaudits today, obviously because in New Japan it's so important with historical lineage as we keep going on through this match, like the echoes of this match reverberate to this day. Yeah. And whilst, as you can say, Okada is not following the mold of Inoki, he is following the notion of a standard bearer. And he's still to this... I mean, it's the 50th anniversary, and who's he facing off in the Wrestle Kingdom main event? He's facing the evil Gaijin Jay White, and (laughs) feuding with the not-quite-so-evil Gaijin Will Ospreay. They've gone back to it somewhat. I guess more now Gaijin are coming in not to show their version of wrestling outside of Zack Sabre Jr., perhaps. But their hybriding of all the influences, including Japanese wrestling. The the gaijins that come in now are the nerds for Japanese wrestling and want to do Japanese wrestling in Japan. Yeah. And also there's, like, somewhat the homogenizing of wrestling styles that's occurred due to um, the internet and such. We've talked about that before. Yeah, I was going to say homogenizing is harsh, but I think it's both harsh and accurate, probably. (laughs) Harsh, but fair. (laughs) Yeah, it's like... You associate homogenization with negativity all the time, but in a way it's a sign of like barriers breaking and that people from different cultures do get to sample a lot more of it. Yeah. You know, it's at our fingertips, not just modern Japanese wrestling, but a match from 47 years ago we've been able to talk about for about an hour. <laughs> and they've loved every minute of it. Yeah, and ultimately down to Antonio Inoki, a man that was able to penetrate internationally, maybe more so than many other wrestlers from that time, especially Japanese wrestlers. You know, Giant Baba, despite having a couple of runs with the NWA world title, didn't really have a stamp in American culture. Those that did, that were Japanese heritage, were usually Japanese Americans like Tojo Yamamoto, and half of them are like of Polynesian descent, but they pose as Japanese wrestlers. Ah. I suppose the Great Muta would be another example. Jumbo Saruta did have some good runs in the AWA as well, doing a run as AWA world champion. But Inoki was the one that penetrated the culture and was being talked about to this day. And not just in America and obviously, and not just in the UK and Europe, uh, also Korea, as we said, and even places like Pakistan. He was a huge figure in Pakistan for winning against like their idol at the time in what was what was one of the matches that did become a shoot. He did try and... The guy tried to take liberties with Inoki in the ring, the Pakistan hero. I don't have his name here. And Inoki <laughs> just had to slap him down and force him to submit. And then he was in big trouble, he thought. He was worried he was going to die. <laughs> and then he sort of waved to the crowd in happy, like in acknowledgement, like a double-arm wave, which was like an Inoki pose. And it's believed that the Muslim audience that would have been pretty much all the people in Pakistan Pakistan in that crowd took that as a sign of like a like a Muslim prayer symbol, you know, showing praise to Allah. Ah, and so from there it was seen as like he was acknowledging their culture, and then he became like a hero in Pakistan and had sellout shows for years after that as well over there. And the I think it was the Prime Minister of Pakistan as a high figure, high political figure in Pakistan did acknowledge Anoki's death and the impact that he had in Pakistan on Twitter. You know, during all the time of the floods and everything as well. Exactly, exactly. It's it's just what Anoki is a wild, wild story of a man. Yeah, Mafu 
one time guest on this this podcast summed it up by saying if you wrote Anoki's life as a movie script several studios would turn it down for just not being realistic yeah not only is he one of the 10 most important figures in wrestling for a cultural impact i would say he's one of the most i mean you can be you can't be more or less unique but he had the most unique characteristics, maybe. Or or not even unique, because obviously everyone in wrestling has an ego, but he might have had everyone else beat for ego. But he also maybe had everyone else beat for a vision, for an idea of what wrestling was and sticking to it for its good times and its ill. Considering he is in the same business as Vincent Kennedy McMahon, that speaks volumes. They are very much kindred spirits, I think. So, yeah, I mean, I would say read up on your Inoki, look up your Inoki, and definitely this is a great starting point, I think, for fantastic technical wrestling, but also... And to just get that sense of, like, how can you have a a fairly dry technical... I mean, it's funny, really, like, they don't do many more of the moves that Young Lions are allowed to do. You look at how Young Lions are presented, they're essentially put in the Inoki mould... I mean, that wasn't unique to Inoki, just wrestling in black trunks, but you can argue that that's what they were doing. Sensible haircuts... Black trunks, only do drop kicks, Boston crabs, simple submission holds, occasional suplexes. Smouldering sexiness. Well, yeah, some of them do anyway. Not nah, I, was, I, was, I was referring more to Anoki specifically. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you laugh at the, the jaw, but it's distinctive. And, you know, he's almost like a classically handsome Hollywood man, but just that step more. It's all like how Bruce Campbell, who also is a man of a notorious chin... It's like yeah. it's like a caricature of a handsome man. Yes, you know where they accentuate one part of their body, and he was known as the chin in in Japan. That was like an affectionate nickname for him. So he, <laughs> he was aware of it. He was at this time married to a beautiful Japanese movie star. It was again like Posh and Bex or something like that, a sports star and a high profile movie music star. Ah, oh, like how Akada is married to a pop star now. Yes, yes. And Muhammad Ali, when they were talking about prize money and everything, sort of inferred he'd be up for a wife swap, if that were the case. <laughs> but that's, you know, Ali there. <laughs> wow. You brought Ali up, and there, there's a moment. MMA was sort of born out of what Inoki did. That Ali fight, as, as awkward as it is a watch... What it represents and the world we've ended up with in a combat sport, shoot combat sport environment, as well as a worked environment, it can't be overstated how seminal that moment was. Mm. I think it's one of those things that grows in retrospect. At the time, it was seen as a farce outside of Japan. But yeah, just Inoki, give this match a chance, I would say, uh, if you've got any kind of time for technical wrestling, to just see something different, but... Again, like I said, how you can do the simplistic stuff and make a, a thrilling match out of it. Like, yeah. these people are going ballistic in the final minutes of sitting through a technical 59-minute match and they're just loving every last second gasp of it. Mm. It's not it's not milking it in the same way as, like, a modern-day big move, big move, big move. They're just doing the fundamentals, but they're playing off the exhaustion, the time element to it. You know, it's it's every bit as thrilling as any any other kick-out fest you get nowadays in just in its own way i mean like i said i'm giving it at least four and three quarter stars what would you say would be your rating around for it 
So I, I would probably go around the four and a half mark, but that's no slight against the match. That is my stylistic bias just creeping in just a touch. Yeah. But yeah, and if you just want to learn about technical wrestling, I think this is one of the best things you could watch. Any of this or some of the World of Sports stuff that William Regal recommends. <laughs> there was this lad, right? Let's kill it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a different form of technical wrestling. But anyway, I think we've, we've talked as much as we can about this match. For, well, no, we could talk more, but for much as is reasonable. But we're not leaving Japan. We have got a thematic follow-up to this. Because of the parameters that we set ourselves in match of the week, it's kind of an awkward fitting one match that fits what you wanted to talk about through the door. But we have found it, and we have got it. And it's what you'll be listening to next week, because Simon's on holiday. So even if we do have a five-star match in the interim, you're just going to have to wait a while. So, Simon, what will people be hearing us discuss next week on Match of the Week? People will be hearing us discuss a match on a WWF card in Japan, as Lorcan uh, alludes, between Stan Hansen, noted American Gaijin, and Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, but wrestling a slightly different way. Ichiban himself, Hulk Hogan. And you'll find out more about that if you don't know what that means in that episode. You won't be hearing that yet, but if people want to get in touch with you in the interim, Simon, because they can't wait to find out what Ichiban means, or they have more recommendations of Inoki matches or anything else that they think you might enjoy, how can they do so? Uh, people can get in touch with me on si- uh, on Twitter, rather, where I'm known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of falls there were supposed to be in this match. My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, as in the A-N at the beginning of Anal Beads. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you put that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtwisepod at gmail.com. LMTWisePod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. And if you feel like throwing a few pennies our way to pay for our New Japan World subscriptions and the like, then by all means go to our patreon.com slash lmtyspod. Mm. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.